Hello everyone, Sława Bogom and welcome to the next episode of Searching for the Slavic Soul, which is a podcast by Vitya. My name is Magda Lewandowska and uh, I'm very proud of myself that I managed to introduce myself at the very beginning of this episode, which doesn't always happen. So my name is Magda Lewandowska and I am the writing and talking and well, recently showing my face on YouTube member of the VTS team. Uh, if it's not the first time you're hearing my, as I'm told, apparently very lovely Polish accent, then you know that here in VTS project, we are focused on promoting Slavic tradition and in searching for the Slavic soul. So in the podcast, as well, in, as, well as in VTS blog, we are trying to dissect the not Slavic influences that has been contaminating the Slavic tradition in general and the Slavic native faith in particular. Uh, most of these influences are obviously Judeo-Christian, but some of which I talked about in the previous episode as well as in the episode, I think, 14th, uh, which was the one about Slavic magic and a certain Patricia who makes up stuff, even though she doesn't have a clue, which is something that many people do nowadays. But uh, never mind. Uh, what I was saying, I was saying of the foreign contaminants of the Slavic tradition and Slavic native faith. Uh, and I was saying, I wanted to say that some of them are pagan, like general pagan, like uh, Wicca or Norse. But as it Turns out some of these contaminants are actually more, I know, political, I suppose. Uh, if communism can be called a political issue on which <laughs> I think many disagree. And uh, they, they, they call communism more like a religion uh, than a political view, which actually can be right because I'm digressing here again. So, uh, so anyway, what I was talking about, as the title of the episode indicates, we today we will be talking about communism uh, and we'll be trying to figure out uh, why people think that it's a Slavic thing. So uh, there's actually one more thing I wanted to mention before we start. Today I will be talking mostly about uh, what Slavic tradition or history is not. I won't be talking much about what it actually is. So if any of you already know enough about communism <laughs> to not to mix it into the pre-Christian Slavic tradition uh, or religion, uh, then you will most likely get bored today uh, listening to me. So I won't really get offended if you tune out now. Uh, I won't get offended mostly because I'm Polish and it's pretty much, <laughs> pretty much impossible to offend me. You know, my Polish family and whole society made sure my skin grows thick and callousy from repetitive emotional trauma and, you know, verbal violence. <laughs> But I also won't, won't get offended because we, we're really not here to like bore each other. We are here to figure out some stuff. 
and if you already figured it out what's the point to listen to me producing myself about communism i mean i mean well there there isn't is it still uh listen if you want don't listen if you don't i'm happy either way because it's the 19th episode of searching for the slavic soul i actually can't believe we've made it that far and i'm just so so happy to be here uh, and i'm just going to let the music play at this stage because uh i really don't seem to be able to stop talking today so welcome So, communism, early medieval Slavs, let's go. Uh, the reason why I'm talking about communism today is because while on social media, I just keep seeing post after posts and comments after comments about how our ancestors, like the Slavic ancestors, the early medieval pre-Christian pagans, uh, how they were living in a communistic society and therefore now the we, the modern Rodnovers, we have to live in communism too. And, you know, I'm old enough to actually remember communism in Poland with uh, with the all the parades for the May the 1st or was it May the 3rd and all the singing communistic songs. Uh, actually, believe it or not, I'm old enough to remember the nuclear explosion in Chernobyl. So... <laughs> In a way, talking about communism is a bit of a nostalgic experience for me because preparing for this episode, it required me to read about stuff that was, you know, still going on uh, in my childhood. So anyway, uh, what I want to say is that I remember communism in Poland. I lived it. I experienced it. And I know it for a fact that communism has absolutely nothing to do with Slavic native faith or even the way our pre-Christian ancestors lived. Uh, but still, you know, I am the sort of person that by nature questions everything. So when I am reading some posts on or comments about how our early medieval ancestors were communists, I kind of go like, Am I going crazy or is it them who's completely mad? So in order to figure out this one out, you know, to, to answer the is it me or is it them question, I thought I'd read a bit about Marxism and Leninism and a bit about Mao Zedong and stuff. Uh, because when you think you might be going crazy, the actually best thing to do is to read crazy people <laughs> and make a direct comparison because why not anyway i i read a bit about marxism and well the thing about marxism is that it's not only a political doctrine it's a whole new way of looking at the reality at the history and the past but also at the future because what marxism is actually is a kind of uh, prophecy, I suppose, which is put into a quasi-scientific language. Uh, so basically what happened, uh, Karl Marx and his beloved friend Friedrich Engels, uh, they did a lot 
of what bored 19th century rich European men did. They basically sat comfortable in chairs, they smoked pipes or cigars, um, they drank from what I uh, am hearing a lot of beer because they were both German and put the world to rights. And you know, we all do it nowadays too, but the problem with 19th century rich European men was that they were actually quite influential. And regardless of the level of their alcoholism, if they had uh, a rich enough dad, which Engels did, uh, and uh, dad's fortune founded the whole lifestyle of sitting in the chairs, they could really put their ideas out there and make how it's nowadays called an impact. And, you know, what an impact it was. Like the whole Europe changed from all this thinking, like sitting in the chairs and drinking beer. The whole Europe ha changed. The, the, the Tsar was dethroned and the whole family murdered. And I'm jumping ahead. And that's not good. So let's just circle back to the chairs and the two beer lovers um, supported by Engel's dad's fortune. So they sat in the chairs and they considered themselves so wise and so naturally talented that they figured they don't actually have to do any studies. They don't have to do any research whatsoever. They just need their brains and, of course, Engels', Engels is dad's money. And that is absolutely enough to figure out and fix all the problems of the whole entire world. And the main problem, uh, according to Marx and Engels, was the nature of the history which in their opinion, was so obviously following a pattern that was just so clear and so out there for everyone to see, but somehow only Marx and Engels could see it from the chairs. <laughs> so in order to help others to see the pattern, they wrote it down and explained with examples they took from, I don't actually, I'm not actually sure from where, because the, it wasn't from any in-depth historical, archaeological, or anthropological, or I don't know, psychological even studies. But that clearly wasn't a problem for them, because in 19th century, the fact, the whole fact that they were European men uh, and they were rich, that just made them like automatically the wisest and smartest people in the whole room. So the pattern they saw and described, and uh, it's something called historical materialism, which is a concept that describes the whole history of the humankind. Like, let me repeat, the whole history of the entire humankind. And Marx and Engels, <laughs> with no studies, no data, no in-depth historical knowledge of any part of the history, let alone the whole history, from their com comfortable chairs, they could just figure it all out. And what they figured out is that the drive of the whole history of the whole humankind 
is not ideas, is not religions, uh, is not, I don't know, human nature, but it's technology and material conditions. And that is it. And uh, coming out from that, they split every single society or civilization uh, ever known to them or you know, to others. They, they split them into four categories. So the first category they called primitive communism and they put it into a, and they put into these categories every single culture of or society of hunter gatherers of which they knew none but that's okay because who cares anyway Marx and Engels argued that hunter gatherers they simply have to have like these super equal and egalitarian societies because they figured that hunter-gatherers have to like move from place to place quickly and often, and therefore they just can't possibly accumulate a lot of material goods. And they obviously have no technology, therefore the society is like totally egalitarian and equal, and they share absolutely everything, and therefore they are the primitive communists which is super funny because one could have thought that a 19th century educated person would actually have heard about Genghis Khan, who, you know, was the leader of a 100% nomadic people that moved from place to place often and didn't really have much technology, but somehow, you know, they managed not to be poor or egalitarian. But of course, Mongols in the 11th of 12th or 12th century, when Chinggis Khan ruled them, they were not hunter-gatherers, but more of a nomadic pastoral people. I mean, you know, before Chinggis Khan took charge, because after he took charge, they were just super rich warriors. Still, we don't have to go to medieval ages to find not egalitarian hunter-gatherers. If you look into a proper modern research on societies of uh, hunter-gatherers, you will very quickly realize that they actually are not that super equal. So, there is this thing called Gini coefficient, which is a measure of income or wealth distribution inequality. So the, the higher the Gini coefficient, the more inequal the society is. Um, so a Gini coefficient of one describes a society where only one person has all the wealth and everyone else is just peace poor, while Gini coefficient of zero describes a society where everyone has exactly the same amount of wealth. So. If you look at societies of hunter-gatherers, the Gini coefficient is 0.25, which is the same as, for, for example, in Białoruś in 2019. And you know how much money the richest person in Białoruś has? 11.4 billion dollars. Uh, it's Lukashenko, by the way. And you know what is the minimum wage in Białoruś? It's $114 a month. If this is equality, then I am a bloody ballerina. Still, Marx and Engels figured it has to be because otherwise 
it wouldn't neatly fit into the whole pattern of they saw from their chairs. So according to Marxism, hunter-gatherers live in perfect equality, even though they don't. But it doesn't matter, because you know, facts only matter if they confirm an armchair thinker theories, theories, otherwise who cares? So, according to the historical materialism after the primitive communists, who don't exist, uh, but who cares? There are the ancient societies which have better technology than hunter-gatherers and they also have more wealth. And the extra wealth, as Marxism claims, uh, is generated by the slaves and distributed among the owners of the slaves. So, according to Marxism, all ancient civilizations were just societies of the oppressed slaves and oppressing slave owners. And all the other groups of people, like, you know, free farmers who rented land or owned land, or I don't know, fishermen who sometimes had their own boat or sometimes were hired to work on someone's, someone else's boat. You know, lots of free people, like pretty much like we all really, people who were just trying to survive, make ends meet and I don't know, maybe better their life a little bit. It all just doesn't matter because Marx said it was the oppressed slaves and the bad and the selfish slave owners. By the way, apparently the Gini coefficient for ancient Rome, which was obviously full of slaves, was somewhere between 0 0.42 uh, to 0 0.44. Remember that, we will use that later. After the slave-driving societies, according to Marxism, go the feudal societies like, I don't know, the Holy Roman Empire, which was called Roman, but was really just Germany and a few other countries put together in the early medieval period. And they were kept together for, I think, like 700 years or something like that. So in feudalism, you have this vassal-liege relationship that is based on the ownership of the land. And according to Marxism, in feudalism, the oppressed group of people are, or were the serfs, and the oppressors were the liege lords. And as the <laughs> late motif of Marxism go, the level of technology in feudal state, states was higher than in the slave states, and there was because there was more material goods and that drove the inequality even higher because the oppressed were forced to produce more but the oppressors took it all which if we look at Gini coefficient in the Holy Roman Empire actually checks out because depending on which the century we are looking at the Gini coefficient in Holy Roman Empire so it was somewhere between just under 0 0.7 to just over 0 0.9, which is a huge, huge inequality. And that's cool, isn't it? So, so far I've been so mean and sarky when talking about Marxism and suddenly it checks out. So was I wrong? Were they right? It's, you know, let's just wait and see. Because, according to Marxism, after feudalism, the next stage of the inevitable historical development of any human society 
is capitalism. And capitalism, according to Marxism, is a system where the technology is even more developed, the society is like even more industrialized, the material conditions grow even more, and that results in further intensification of oppression. So the working class, as Marx and Engels call them, the proletariat, are the so the factory workers, um, which, by the way, it's worth noting that we are really talking only factories here, because according to classic Marxism, the agriculture is on, which, by the way, what is what our ancestors did, the agriculture is like inferior pro form of production. And in the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels, they even were writing about the idiocy of rural life. So in capitalism, they are the, the factories, not fields. And in factories, the proletariat slaves away to fill the pockets of the factory owners, so the bourgeoisie. And this is the ultimate inequality, the ultimate oppression that has been growing and accumulating over the course of the entire history. And the history, according to Marxism, is set up this way that it kind of wants the oppression to end. So the capitalism, the ultimate oppressive system, you know, the, the top of the pyramid of the oppression, it just has to end, like literally, according to Marxism, because this is the pattern of history that Marx and Engels saw from their chairs. It just has to end with a revolution, which brings about the, the real communism, so the ultimate fair and equal system. And it just looks so nice on paper, doesn't it, when you read or hear about it. Like the, the history is just so fair and it will always find a way to stop the oppression from happening in the long run. And it all would be all very nice and cool if not the, well, the facts, really, the reality. Because if you look at the Gini coefficient in capitalistic countries, which according to Marxism should really be like hitting at least 0.9 or even 1 on the Gini coefficient graph, they actually don't. Gini coefficient for USA, the like ultimate evil capitalistic country, is 0 0.41. Which is, if you remember, not that far off from ancient Rome. But to make it even more funny, for modern China, which I hope you all know is a communistic country, the Gini coefficient is 0 0.38, which is definitely more than in primitive communism, which, if you remember, was 0 0.25. Or in modern Belarus, where Lukashenko has $11.4 billion dollars, and the minimum salary is $114 a month. There is no official data for North Korea, which is another modern communistic country, but some data has been leaked and it's been put into a spreadsheet and it gave a result of 0 0.6 to 0 0.8 on the Gini coefficient scale. So, 
Where is the ever-growing inequality of capitalism? Where is the oppression that intensifies? And where is predicted by Marx and Engels from the chairs? <laughs> so inevitable and definitely coming soon, the communistic revolution through which the history deals with the oppressors. I don't know. I don't think anyone does really. What I think is that people who know history, they consider Marxism as yet another failed concept. And these who believe in Marxism, they do exactly that. They believe in it like any religious people without any data, any facts or anything real to confirm their beliefs. They just, you know, know it to be true. And since we are on the topic of religion, like Slavic native faith is, which this podcast is really about, <laughs> you must have noticed that I haven't actually said much about the pre-Christian Slavs and their pagan beliefs. And the reason why I haven't said anything is because if you look at how pre-Christian Slavs lived, and then if you look at Marxism, and uh, historical materi materialism, there's actually no way pre-Christian Slavs fit into any of these. Uh, you know, our early medieval ancestors, I hope we all know that, were not hunter-gatherers. They were not nomadic people. Um, of course, they did hunt a bit and they gathered a bit, but they also went fishing and they cultivated fields. Uh, they basically did a bit of this and a bit of that, and some of them have slaves, but also some of them were slaves at some point of their life. Uh, because it was customary among Slavs to, for example, enslave an enemy that was conquered during a war, and then after some time freed, uh, and they, they, after some time they freed this slave, and for example, invited this ex-slave to live among the Slavs. And uh, as far as sla slaves go, our Slavic ancestors were pretty much at every end of the spectrum, really, because some of them even traded slaves. So, you know, they caught people <laughs> and sold them on slave markets. But even though they were slaves among the Slavs, the Slavic economy and the agriculture was not based on slave work. Like the slaves were a help, don't get me wrong, and I'm sure they worked very, very hard, but so did all the free Slavic people, um, including children. So there is absolutely no way Slavic society can be considered to be like the slave abusing society. So according to Marxism, the next level of you know, the development after hunter-gatherers. The early medieval pagan societies of Slavs were also not feudal societies. So pretty much as far as classic Marxism go, our pagan ancestors were not and could not possibly have been communists because they were not on the right level of development. They were not in the right point of the materialistic history, so to speak. I mean, you know, 
it's not even that they were on any spectrum of materialistic history. Like if materialistic history is here, uh, our ancestors were like way over there. It just completely doesn't connect. Uh, so really, as far as classic Marxism go, the argument here is pretty much concluded. Our pagan ancestors were not communists and did not live in a communistic society because they couldn't have, according to Marxism. The way they lived just does not fit. Uh, but, you know, Marx and Engels have been proven <laughs> wrong many times with the hunter-gatherers, for example. He who did not live in equal societies, they were proven wrong with the capitalism being like more unequal than feudalism, or for example, with the communistic revolution being only possible in a highly industrialized and capitalistic country. Because if you know the history of the 20th century, you already know that not a single communistic <laughs> revolution took place in a highly industrialized, capitalistic country. So, if Marx and Engels were wrong, let's just keep digging, huh? So, um, one person that believed in Marxism but did not 100% agree with it was Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, the one who led the October Revolution in Russia in 1917. And the first ever proper hands-on communist who actually got to lead a communistic country. Although, actually it wasn't a communistic country that Lenin led. It was a socialistic country. Because as you might or might not know, socialism is not the same as communism. So uh, some say that socialism is a soft form of communism, but that's not right either. Because communism, according to Marxists, is the ultimate highest possible level of development of a society. So the highest level a society can achieve. While socialism is something that is supposed to lead a not industrialized and not capitalistic country, into communism. So if you remember when I was talking about the historical materialism, I was explaining that according to the classic Marxism, the communistic revolution can only happen in an um, industrialized and capitalistic country. Uh, the pattern in the history, the pattern that Marx and Engels saw from their chairs, it's one that has to lead from the primitive communism through the slavery, the feudalism, the capitalism, and then where the struggle of the classes. Actually, I forgot to mention about the classes, didn't I? I mean, I, I did mention about it a bit when I was talking about the oppressed and the oppressors, but I didn't actually... I didn't explain it using the right, right words. So basically, the, the conflict between the oppressed and the oppressors, so the slaves and the slave masters, or the you know serfs and the liege lords, or the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, the struggle between the classes is what culminates in capitalism. Because the inequality is so bad at this stage, the conflict so tense, 
that it's like, and I'm actually citing the communistic manifesto here, like a specter is hunting Europe. It can be felt and it can be experienced and all of the capitalists, they are trying to exercise it, but the power of the proletariat is too strong to be exercised and it explodes into a revolution that breaks down the whole capitalistic system and it leads the nation to the holy communism. So anyway, in classic Marxism, the escalation of the oppression against the working people, the growing struggle of the classes is essential to bring the real communism. But Lenin did not agree with that. He thought that people can be gently, well, not gently, I mean, given what Lenin did, Lenin did with his political opponents, I don't think you can say gently, but people can somehow be led from feudalism to communism without having to go through all the suffering or increasing oppression of capitalism, which we know from analysis of Gini coefficient is not really increasing, but we are not talking facts now, we are talking Marxism <laughs> and Leninism too. So Lenin believed that socialism is a way to jump over the whole capitalistic oppression straight to the bliss of communism. And because of the jump and the lack of the phase of super heavy, according to Marxism, of course, capitalistic oppression, socialism allows things that would not really fly under communism. So socialize, uh, socialism uh, allows things like private property or, for example, sharing common wealth not according to the people's needs. Uh, because one thing that socialism does differently than communism is sharing the common or the communal goods. So all the things that are produced by the society. In communism, the products of work are given away according to the people's needs. It's like Marx said, from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs. But in socialism, it doesn't work like that. The goods are being produced by each according to their abilities, but are distributed to each according to their work. This is a radically different approach. And like from the start, it makes the society less equal. But according to Lenin, that was absolutely fine. So who I am to argue? What I can tell you is how it played out from the for the actual society, because I have seen it with my very eyes. And how it worked was that the, you know, the proper pro proletariat, the hard physically working class was seen as superior and more worthy under socialism. So miners or shipyard workers were considered more important and more worthy than, for example, lawyers and doctors. Uh, they had better privileges. They were given more food and more extra stuff like, I don't know, cars or better houses, 
because if you didn't know, uh, in communistic or rather socialistic Poland, well, actually in the whole, so whole Soviet bloc where I grew up, things like houses or cars didn't actually belong to people. They were given to people by the government um, basing on their labor, on the people's labor, and also whether the people were members of communistic party or not. And that actually explains what a lot of people here in UK, where I live, um, they don't understand about my family. Uh, my dad is a lawyer and my mom is a doctor. And people over here in UK, they think that my family is super rich and well off, while really they are not. I mean, they are better off now because communism ended in Poland like 30 years ago or so. But changes in society, particularly the level of wealth, doesn't change that quickly. So when communism ended in Poland, my parents had to start from scratch, really. Uh, they were in their 40s. They had like, well, they had three children and they had to put together a deposit for their first flat. Because the flat we, like my family, uh, the flat we lived um, in when there was po communism in Poland, it didn't belong to us, it was the government's. Uh, when I was growing up with a lawyer and a physician for parents, <laughs> I was, my whole family was living in a flat, in a block of flats built from concrete in a place that I'm hearing in the West is called <laughs> the project, <laughs> you know? It wasn't a good part of the town. There were alcoholics living next doors and I think upstairs as well, and all sorts of pathology going on around. And people were poor. Uh, nobody really had anything because one thing that is equal <laughs> in communism is that everyone's life is equally rubbish like everyone's life sucks equally because you have no future really nothing is up to you the government the the party they make all the decisions and nothing's really up to you uh, for example when my mom graduated from the medical school uh, she didn't have a say in where she would work she would she was told to go to this little town I grew up in and she had to go there. Uh, she was told to work in a hospital and she had to work there. Uh, she was told to live in this flat and she had to live there. Uh, nothing was really up to her and was the same with my dad, uh, same with everyone else. Uh, so the, the more important members of society like the miners or you know they had a little bit better things but they still didn't have much especially freedom of choice it's like you were stuck in this sucky situation and there was just no way out uh, you couldn't better your life you couldn't i don't know travel choose your career or choose where you wanted to live in, in order to go to go abroad, you had to jump through unbelievable hoops to get a passport. 
because in the eyes of the communistic <laughs> party, one had to be worthy of passport. One had to be appropriately communistic and big enough believer in communism. And it was actually all checked and verified. Uh, sure, there was free healthcare and education, but it wasn't really there to help anyone or make anyone a better, healthier, happier person. It was there to make you more productive, so you can make more things that are then taken away from you and given to the... I don't really know to whom, because nobody had anything, so... Where did all this wealth go? I honestly don't know. And because people were not happy, really like, you know, they didn't work very well. They, they were not very productive. The things they produced were not good quality. Even the design sucked. <laughs> the furniture were all the same and just so sad looking. The, the clothes, the, I don't know, cutlery even it was all the same and boring and there were permanent shortages of everything basic stuff like toilet paper or sugar so in order to prevent stockpiling the government introduced ration stamps like literally i remember my parents were given the stamps together with their salary and the stamps were like super precious because uh, you know if you didn't have them, if you didn't have these ration stamps, you couldn't buy anything. Even if you had money to buy it, you still couldn't buy it because everything was rationed. It was crazy. Um, it was also very sad. And um, I'm not saying here that our pre-Christian ancestors had it easy. They didn't. They, the, their life was really, really hard but at least they had a choice of what to do with it and how to use up their times and where to put their work and if they like produce something they could keep it no one was taking it away from them unless you know they were invaded but then they could defend themselves you know they could travel if they wanted if they didn't like where they were living they could just grab their stuff and go looking for their luck somewhere else and uh, this is how they spread all over europe but at the same time let's not forget they they had slaves and their slaves worked hard perhaps even harder than the slaves owners so the slavs who were not slaves uh, yet they were not, you know, the slaves, they were not valued as much as the free people. Uh, actually, if you read the oldest legal codices like the, uh, like Raskaya Pravda, which was the written law of Kievan Rus, it becomes obvious that our Slavic ancestors, uh, that, it, that for our Slavic ancestors, slaves were not actually people. Legally, they were treated more like animals. So in the Slavic traditional law was the concept of man price or blood money, which in Polish is called głowszczyzna, and in Russian, for example, vira. And it's is defined or an, an amount of money that is defined by the law that a person who kills another person has to pay the family of the killed person. 
and by the law, the fine had to be paid for killing every free person, but did not have to be paid after killing a slave. If you killed a slave in Kievan Rus, you only had to pay back the market value of the killed slave. And the value, the market value, it wasn't paid to the family of the killed slave. It was, it had to be paid to the slave's owner, which is exactly what happened after unlawfully killing an animal. And this is why I said that among our pre-Christian ancestors, the hard-working slaves were not valued highly like they should have been if in socialism. Our ancestors valued enslaved people like they valued animals. And by the way, the man price or the blood money, so the gwufszczyzna or vira, they are they are very old concepts and they have the roots in the tribal law of not only Slavs, but as far as I know, all pagan European cultures. So basically in the tribal times, before the nations or countries started to form, if you killed a person, this person's whole family went after you. And it's not even because they wanted to go after you, they like had to go after you. That was the law. They had that, you know, the family had to revenge the death of their kin. On one side, this system prevent random killings and gave family or clans protection to every member of the family or clan. But it also could cause feuds dragging through <laughs> generations. You know, like if I killed your uncle, then you go after me. So then my daughter goes after you. Then your son goes after my daughter and it just keeps going on like that. So in order to stop this sort of generational feud, the leaders of Slavic tribes, so the kniazie or książęta, uh, they started introducing new laws where blood money, like wówszczyzna or vira, uh, they, they they were a way of stopping the feud from actually ever starting. I mean, it didn't stop it entirely because if the gwufszczyzna or vira, if it was not paid, the law gave the family or the killed person a right to go after the killer. But the new laws gave another option, the, the fine, to, you know, pay the fine instead of, the, of starting the feud. And the laws also put the fine as preferred way of conflict resolution, like, you know, preferred over the feud, which is, by the way, how history works. It doesn't destroy one system and allows another to emerge. It gradually makes one system obsolete and allows new system to develop on the foundations of the old obsolete one. Uh, this is how it works, not by an inevitable revolution, but by inevitable evolution, which is by definition a gradual process. And if you don't believe me, just look around you. you know? Why is the power in your car's engine described in horsepower? <laughs> you know? Why do you like say to rewind a digital video. There's nothing to rewind there or wind or unwind. Why in English the days of the week are named after pagan gods or pagan gods domains? 
uh, why are eggs sold in dozens? And uh, a, say, a saying, this is a saying I learned out recently, why do you say in English that money are made hand over feasts? Uh, look it up. This is all, it's all rooted in the past. They are all, all these sayings, they are remnants of the past that is still alive today. This is how history works. It's not some sort of pre-planned and, and determined from the very beginning turn of events. It's like a slow flow of, of events, traditions, customs or habits that people use. And if they work these customs or traditions, if they work, they stay alive. And if they not, they just fade away. So to summarize, uh, no. Early medieval pre-Christian Slavs did not live in communism, not in primitive communism, not in proper communism, and not in any other form of communism or socialism or anything else. If you want to name our ancestors social and legal system, it was more of a tribal democracy. They had private property, they respected private property, they shared with their family and likely with their neighbors but nothing belonged to everyone and sharing was not compulsory. If someone did not want to share, not only own private property or food, but also if they, if they didn't want to share the customs or the traditions, they were absolutely allowed to do so, although there was a price to pay for that. So um, sometimes the price was just a small one, like, you know, the fact that your neighbor didn't like you <laughs> and didn't want to help you when you needed help. Uh, but sometimes the price was much higher. So, for example, in the Chronicle of Helmold, uh, we read that for breaking the Slavic rule of hospitality, uh, one could even have Orn House burned down, which is a truly severe punishment. However, the fact of existence of such punishment indicates one thing, that a pre-Christian Slav was allowed to have own house. And as long as he or she followed the tenets of the Slavic religion, uh, he or she could keep this house and even pass it over to their children, which is something unthinkable in communism because communism does not allow private property and assumes that everyone is equal. Hence, passing private property to your children, which is basically making your children more important than others, is not even written into communism. And there is one thing I want to stress here. Uh, communism is not a Slavic concept. The only reason it is, in popular opinion, associated with anything Slavic. It's because Vladimir Ilyich Lenin was Russian and decided that Russia simply has to be the country to host the first <laughs> communistic revolution. But apart of Lenin, there really aren't a lot of Slavic ideologues of communism. Marx and Engels were German 
and they were inspired mostly by French revolutionists like Maximilien Robespierre or German philosophers like Hegel. Josef um, Vissarionovich Stalin was Georgian, uh, Mao Zedong obviously Chinese, and that's only the creators of the ideology. If you look at the content of the of communism, so the tenets of communism, none of it can actually be applied in any way to anything even remotely pre-Christian or Slavic. Like nothing, not a single thing. Why then are there so many Slavic pagan communists? My guess is that they are stupid and don't have a clue, but that's only a guess. They might also be misguided or misinformed and at the same time too lazy to actually check things out on their own. But one thing I know for sure is that one actually can, one cannot possibly be a communist and follow a religion because communism rejects religion as an opium for the people. There is no place for religion in communism. Actually, there's no place for people in communism. There's only place for communism in communism. Uh, it's a truly totalitarian and frankly delusional ideology. I mean, how can one believe that history can be predicted by a couple of middle-aged 19th century drunk guys? Like, how can anyone possibly believe that Anything other than death is certain in the future. How can anyone in their own mind think that a totally equal society of humans <laughs> is actually achievable? I mean, we are all different. We are different heights and strengths and we have different abilities and interests and skills and dreams and expectations and needs. Some of us are chilled out or lazy and some of us are neurotic workaholics, like some of us are born blind or deaf or with chromosomal defects. How are we going to equal for this? How can anyone achieve equality in a species that, like Homo sapiens, is by default full of individuals whose genes make them differ from each other. That's just totally crazy. And with, with this crazy, I'm going to finish my pretty much <laughs> episodes long rant. Uh, believe it or not, uh, diving into Marxism was actually a big change from the usual scarce medieval sources. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, I hope after today I won't hear any more about communistic pre-Christian Slavs because quite frankly it's just completely ahistorical BS. Um, as always, if you have any comments, any questions or anything else to say about anything related to Vitya's project, do let us know on uh, Vitya's website, on YouTube, on Facebook, on Instagram or via email which is all going to be linked up in the notes for this episode. Um, and there's also one thing. Um, I'm actually not sure when I will see you again. Um, 
there's a lot of things happening in my life at the moment. Uh, free time is scarce and energy levels are not that great. So I might, as I did last year, go into hibernation for the winter or I might not. If it's all still uncertain and depends on many factors that are mostly outside of my control. So, well, if I don't see you until the spring, uh, take really, really, really good care of yourself. Uh, stay connected to the reality <laughs> and stay as far away from delusions like communism uh, as it's only possible. Uh, stay connected to your dollar and to your ancestors and keep yourself safe from any malevolent demons uh, while inviting the benevolent ones. And I will definitely see you next time. I'm just not sure when. Suava.